This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Historical License. Tim Powers. Research. And Tom Slick. Last April, the Secret Masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby Digital Editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. We once again uh, start an episode with the Preamble Hut, and this uh, Preamble Hut is a cleverly disguised, cool promo thing. Uh, we're already chock full of ads, but uh, I got an opportunity that I couldn't uh, pass up to get you something cool, and that something would come uh, from Arknight uh, via their uh, current Kickstarter called Flat Plastic Miniatures 2. And what they do is they uh, do minis that are printed on these uh, transparent plastic mini-sized cards. They have a front and the back uh, in the same silhouette, and you can flip them, you can see through, there's no white. And they're doing a Kickstarter now, uh, creatively named Flat Plastic Miniatures 2, where they're having a whole bunch of cool uh, minis. And if you support their Kickstarter, you can get a sheet of Ken and Robin Flat Plastic Minis. So uh, head on <laughs> over to a Kickstarter uh, and type in Flat Plastic Miniatures 2, or uh, find our show notes and find the link and head on over, and if you support them, uh, you can uh, miniaturize us and have us fight kobolds or something. Right. Yes. We put us in any number of horrific situations. Why was this a good idea? What if, what if voodoo is right, Robin? Well, I think for voodoo, you need a traditional lead miniature. That's ah, why right, they yes, or pewter. pewter because of all the voodoo yeah, problems. Because of all the voodooing. That makes sense. Uh, well, then we better get out of the preamble. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly, nay, shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we are looking back to the first Aztecs who pounded out the corn to make tortillas, and the first bullet makers who poured out lead into little molds and eventually got bored and carved them into tiny people, <laughs> the dice found in the ruins of Persian cities, and Peter Frampton's childhood, which is probably less exciting than those things. The question, when we go back into history in the gaming hut, 
When do we ignore it? When do we ignore Peter Frampton's um, uh, uncle or the fact that the bullet mold industry and the tiny lead people industry are entirely different industries? Robin, when do we take historical license in gaming? I guess, first of all, we have to, uh, obviously here we're assuming that we're all using Ken's dictum of always set your game on Earth. As we should. Uh, but there are various gradations of how alternate your alternate history is going to be. So uh, your choice right away when you run a game is... This, due to player agency, can go in a radically different direction than real history, and that's case A. But we're going to focus on case B, in which we are nerd-troping real history that more or less stays uh, true, and uh, therefore... But it has a secret component to it. Right. So it turns out that the Surrealists are playing around in the dreamlands, but nobody else knows that the world... Is uh, it's crazy and infested with Cthulhu, except the few people who do know that thing, or or, or you know, we know that uh, history is, has unfolded as it has here in the uh, 1890s as we're stalking Dracula, except there's Dracula, and here's this intelligence agency that's trying to recruit him. So we're looking at that style of uh, historical play. Do we have a, a term for that that we want to come up with? I usually just call it secret history because it implies that uh, you're keeping history pretty much on the on the regular uh and behind the scenes in the wainscoting other people call it wainscot history that there is uh all manner of, of vampires and magic and uh whatever else going on to uh explain or at least uh, happen at the same time as the interesting fun history outside the door well on the grounds that wainscoting history requires you to then explain what wainscoting is let us go with the clearer Secret history is our term. So when you are working on a secret history, the conceit is that you're going to stick to history. But, of course, uh, we still have creative license. And uh, you may choose to uh, mush things around a bit in order to make your story more interesting. So, uh, for example, and and I guess the the way to handle this in a, uh, a game book is you may choose to note in a footnote that this is not historically accurate, but we're changing this for this particular reason. So to come up with a a really tiny example that doesn't change the world at all, in Cthulhu Confidential, the uh, 30s and 40s noir set original book for Gumshoe One-to-One that is uh, uh, on its way, or perhaps even in your hands if you're listening to this after Dragon Meat and got your... uh, exciting preview copy of it, that I wanted to use the word shrink instead of alienist, because in the hard-broiled world, that sounds more like a 30s, 40s, LA, New York, Washington, DC kind of lingo. Turns out, our uh, intrepid proofreader discovered that this term was not in regular use until like the mid-50s. However, none of the alternatives uh, you know, head doctor, uh, which would would have been a similarly uh, sarcastic, slangy. slangy, sarcastic term, uh, doesn't that that we don't know what that means now. You have to then explain. Oh, okay, you meet a head doctor and he's looking at the wainscoting. Okay, let me tell you what a head doctor is, and also let me tell you what wainscoting is. So uh, I just said, you know what? Most people today reading a uh, novel of, of, of a, a private detective set in 1937, if he said, I'm going to really have to go to a shrink after this, very few of them are going to know that's an anachronism. So let's stick with shrink and put in a footnote that says, hey, we know that this term didn't come around until the 50s, but 
to the modern ear, shrink just sounds better, so we're sticking with that. So that's a sort of really footnotey example of, of something. But uh, you, I think, can go to great effort to make sure that, for example, if a historical figure is not in a particular place at a particular time, you consider it unfair play to stick in there. I, I do. I mean, I will make exceptions for things that either people believed at the time or that they, or that, you know, just really gooses the story in a fun way. For example, in my, in my current Unknown Armies game, the uh, Pinkerton who broke the Mala Maguires, James McParland, was in Parsons, Kansas during the Great Southwest Rail Strike. Much later, when he was also tied up in a uh, murder investigation in Idaho, socialist newspapermen claimed that he was in Parsons, Kansas, running a uh, murderous hotel keeper ring, and that he had all of these um, uh, vast and uh, an exciting uh, series of murders that were down to him and his confederates who were uh, informing on the Union, and if you inform on the Union, you're obviously a, a mass murderer. Uh, there was no such series of murders at all, but it's such a great story, and it fits so well into the sort of mythology of unknown armies that I decided to say that that murder spree actually happened because it was written about later on as if it had happened. And in the fiction, I could say, no, they wrote about it in 1908, and it went back in time and made it true, and that's why we have a murder spree. But no one was going to check me because, you know, come on, who besides me is looking up footnotes about James McParland? Nobody, right. except my players once I introduce him. But but that's the sort of level of, of, of workaround. I think you did a similar thing again in Cthulhu Confidential. Didn't you decide that Mickey Cohen was so cool that he had to be the main mobster, even though he was... A sub-mobster at the time? Uh, no, actually, uh, the fact that he is uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel's uh, uh, torpedo, his bodyguard in uh, scary, scary, scary scare quotes, is actually quite accurate in that one. Okay, um, all right. There are um, some of the things that I do. Uh, I do move. There's a, a killer crime spree that happened in 46 that I then fictionalize and have it happen in 37. Right. But that's a case of, you know, this is, you know, the, the events depicted there are quite different, although the actual events are kind of elliptonic as well. It was a, and it was a case of a guy going on a crime spree in order to uh, create his weird tech weapon that he would use to uh, cause battleships to disappear. And his plan was to blackmail the Navy by threatening to use this technology. And so he was uh, knocking off uh, electronic shops and killing people. But that's the real story. <laughs> that's the real story. But uh, fortunately, we, you covered it up. Yeah, be before we even add uh, Cthulhu and Kenneth Strickfadden uh, into the mix. But uh, here's another example that I'm currently faced with. The research that I've been doing for uh, The Yellow King, I've been researching the occultists of 1895 Paris. And it turns out that they are mostly boring Rosicrucians. And so I've been crying out to find you know, we got to have an interesting character. Now, I can make these characters interesting by adding the Yellow King to whatever they're doing, but still, one would like them to be, uh, you know, interesting in their own right, because I'm beginning to suspect, Ken, that occultism is nothing but religion for people who like to wear scarves indoors. Ha! <laughs> uh, well, obviously, it's also a religion for people who like to make up their own scriptures. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's based on the sample size of these frustratingly boring occultists so far. I'm sure <laughs> right. I'll find an interesting one. But it turns well, I mean, out the, the, some of them. I mean, Alistair Crowley, if all he had done is worn scarves indoors, it'd be a whole different story. Right? Here's the point. Uh, if I just uh, fiddle it by a few years, 
Crowley is in Paris in 1895. So guess, guess what I'm going to do? You're going to put Crowley in Paris in 1895. Yep. There's going to be a footnote, but he's going to be there because, uh, it, because it turns out, uh, as I was reading the book, it turns out, oh, the founder of the Golden Dawn is in Paris at this time. Oh, wait, he's the least interesting member of of the Golden Dawn. He's the least interesting person. (laughs) Are are we talking about, uh, Wim Westcott, the Uh, the coroner or the other one? Mathers. Oh, right. The, 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 the per- well, I mean, he believes he's a Scottish nobleman, which is not interesting. I mean, you wouldn't invite him to a party to hear him talk about it. In fact, you would deliberately not invite him to a party to avoid hearing him talk right. about it. And he's it. doing, at this point, he's doing like theatrical, uh, rituals with his, his wife to, to bring down ISIS, right? But the, yeah, still, that's something. like I said, I can make it interesting, but I'm going to also cheat and uh, get Crowley in there and, and put in a footnote. Uh, and that's what you would, you know, if you're making a movie about, Occult Paris in 1895. You're just going to put them in there, and you know people will complain about it later. There's no footnote. You're using your creative license, and so uh, the question for for you, the home listener, as to whether to mess around with things, I think can you take it as a, a point of honor that you connect all the dots? And I would suggest that people uh, resist well actualism and uh, allow themselves to mess with things, make it more interesting. And if you really must, at the end of the session. Uh, you can then say, well, he wasn't really there in 1895. He was actually there in 1905, but this was more fun. I would like to say that, yes, the the Puritan ideal of never changing a single historical fact and yet filling it with vampires, magic, and Cthulhu is, it's what to shoot for. But as you say, if you can winkle the dates by a year or two to get Aleister Crowley, or you can go and find a imaginary murder spree uh, and put it in, Go ahead and do that. Uh, you know, my, uh, my players have been involved in I'm, another example is once you put your players into the historical event, they will change it willy or nilly. And the last thing you want to do is say, no, I'm sorry. He survived the gun, sh- the gunfight at the OK Corral. Therefore, you didn't kill him. Right. You can't do that. Yes. Yeah, so anything involving player agency, they, they get to mess around, but they, so, um, so tombstone became a lot bloodier in my game than it did in real history or that it would if I were doing, say, a novel. Uh, or or some other thing where I was doing a secret occult background to Tombstone, I would not add, you know, yet more murdering around a lone oak on the outskirts of town. I would just leave that out. But the players wanted to plant a lone oak and then murder a bunch of people. And I can't say, no, you can't do that. It's not in the postcard. Uh, another example from Tombstone is that uh, uh, the Emperor Norton had a, a chancellor or major domo or buddy who he hung around with in San Francisco named Ahau, who was uh, sort of his, uh, you know, emissary, if you will, to the San Francisco Chinatown. And when I did the research, I discovered that Tombstone, unbeknownst to everyone, had a gigantic Chinatown. There was like probably hundreds, if not thousands of Chinese in Tombstone, Arizona, which you never see in any of the movies. You don't think about it being there, but it's there. It's, it's enormous and it's right in the middle of the town. And I thought, well, who's running the Tombstone Chinatown? I couldn't find anyone right off the top of my head. I probably could have found it if I'd looked a little harder. But I knew that I wanted Ahau to have moved there from Emperor Norton, San Francisco, in an attempt to recapture magical power. Now, there's probably no documentation that says where Ahau was in 1881. But I guarantee you there's a lot of documentation about who was in Tombstone. So when he moves in, you say he moved in secretly. He's taken another name. It's not like they had, you know, you know, birth certificates in 1881 that they would check for uh, Chinese uh, ostensible laundrymen or whoever. So 
secretly you can move a character from one place to another. And if you had found that he was somewhere else definitively in the historical record, would that have precluded you from doing that? Or would you have gone, you know what, creative license? I probably would have either gone, you know what, creative license, or I would have said that Ahau had created a uh, doppelganger and worked that into the story to make it even cooler, as opposed to using it as a, a shutdown of something fun. I would say, all right, we know that Ahau is actually in Stockton or somewhere. Why is why does he have a doppelganger in Stockton? And I would have dropped hints to that effect. And the players, instead of truckling under to him in Tombstone, might have gone up to Stockton to beat up his doppelganger and find stuff out. Well, uh, before this segment uh, becomes as long as actual history, I think it's time <laughs> that we uh, uh, bid it a fair adieu, uh, use our creative license to move through the next commercial. And I bet there's another segment waiting on the other side. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The turning of the pages, the uh, smell of the chamomile herbal tea at our elbow as we read, the feeling of moisture being sucked out of our fingertips into the pages tell us that we're once more in the literate environs of the book hut. And Ken, this time, two uh, Patreon backers, uh, Scott Herring and Kalen, have banded together to ask about an author that... uh, And I've been a little reluctant to schedule this one. Scott asked about that, you know, in the hoary days of old, even before we had a Patreon, and I haven't acted because there's a a terrible revelation coming. But before we get to that, uh, Ken, one of your very favorite genre authors... Uh, is Tim Powers, and both Scott Herring and Kalen want to talk about Tim Powers. So for those who have not yet read him, do you want to uh, start with an overview of the work of this uh, still-living and still-active uh, SF and fantasy writer? Or n- not SF, just uh, just Well, fantasy. he's written SF, it's just that fantasy is, is what he's more famous for. There you go. All right, um, I guess to begin with, Tim Powers comes out of the Southern California scene that he and K.W. Jeter and James Blaylock were all part of this uh, literary community. They were all buddies to one extent or another with Philip K. Dick. Uh, and so, so you can sort of see some of that Dickian influence uh, working its way through powers. He's not 
usually as blatant about the unreality as Dick becomes, but a lot of his stories are about individual identity and why you're not actually that thing. And that is a very Dickian concept. Uh, what I don't know if it was in the water, if it was just something that Powers picked up from, from Dick, or if it's just that great minds flow together, much as they do in a Tim Powers novel. So he began with uh, some science fiction novels, which are okay, uh, The Sky's Discrowned, Epitaph and Rust, and then he was hired by a publisher who wanted to write a series of King Arthur stories set at various times in history. And he picked The Siege of Vienna in 1529, and that is where I think sort of that first Tim Powersian seed of putting magic behind real-world events happens, as in The Drawing of the Dark, a 1979 novel, the Siege of Vienna is caused by the attempt of the Turks to capture the brewery that is the secret heart of the West. And if they capture the brewery, the dark, the literal dark there, um, uh, the, the dark brew at the bottom of the, of the barrel that was laid down by the first proto Celts or something, uh, then they will, they will break the heart of the West and conquer Europe. And King Arthur has been reincarnated to stop them. I'm fairly sure that when he rewrote it after that publisher refused to pay him, he de-Arthured it a little bit, but it's still super Arthurian. And that's sort of the beginning. And then I read him first with the Anubis Gates, which is a lot of people's first entry into powers. And this is sort of the other half of his secret history, which is something uh, from the outside messing with uh, literary history. In this case, uh, Lord Byron, he has put his alter ego, the poet William Ashbless, into the novel. And uh, there is a great deal of time travel and Egyptian gods and hugger mugger and crazy proto Dickensian orphan crime syndicates and weird clowns and everything that you love uh, set in 1810 London, mostly uh, with the same sort of London punk London Ophelia that has sort of driven my life ever since reading the Anubis Gates, if not before probably Sherlock Holmes started it for me, but the Anubis Gates was the real big sort of bombshell that set him off at, um, uh, in his career of mostly secret history and mostly fantastic secret history. He did one more science fiction novel dinner at Deviant's palace, which a lot of people are super fond of. I'm not as big a fan of it, but with uh, On Stranger Tides, which eventually became sort of the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film, although not really, we have the voodoo history of Blackbeard, and we are back in what I consider core powers country. And I could go on and on and on, but uh, I probably will. Anyway, but that's uh, since then, since the uh, 80s, he has written, uh, you know, usually a book every couple of years. Uh, and the most recent one is a ghost story of sorts called Medusa's Web, which has it's sort of a another bite at the time travel apple and another bite at the possession apple, both of them being very uh, powersy and apples and has a satisfactory uh, Hollywoodness to it. Because as an Angelino, a lot of times he really wants to pull Los Angeles and the, and that area into the fiction in the way that he pulled London, for example, into the Anubis Gates or Las Vegas into Last Call. So, uh, there's a confession that I have to make, Ken, which I think yeah, it's, it's fair. Something you, know, you suspect, but this I This is a I, safe this is a safe space, Robin. You know you can always talk to me. I've never fully mm -hmm. outright said to you, which is that I've only succeeded in reading one Tim Powers book. I've tried to read others and have either uh, intentionally stopped in one case or just <sighs> that thing where you realize that you've stopped reading a book because the book that you think you're reading you're not going back to. Uh, I like Tim Powers in theory. I just don't 
connect with his stuff. Well, this will be one of our St. Elmo's moments that we will never speak of again. Well, there you go. Um, what's the one book that you have finished? Let's start on your positive ac- accomplishment, Robin. Let's not right. bully so rag it you. It was Earthquake Weather, uh, wow. which, which had enough enough momentum at the beginning to get me into it. And then I realized that it had bogged down, but I still slogged my way through of the Of the Fault Lines trilogy, Earthquake Weather is by far the weakest. And the fact that you finished that one begins to, I, be, I begin to suspect it's you. It's not Tim. I'm not making any claim that Tim Powers yes. is, is a, a bad writer. He's doing things wrong. He just, uh, it just functionally doesn't work for me. Uh, right. Declare, which I know you love. Uh, yes. I, I, I think anyone with a cursory familiarity with my output knows I love Declare. Uh, my, my, one of my players and good friend Josh once said, every game you run, Ken, is either Declare or Planetary, the Warren Ellis comic, and it is up to the players to figure out which one it is before you do. <laughs> or possibly uh, push things in the direction they want to go that way. Yep. That's the one that I uh, stopped on purpose around page 75 uh, when... Uh, there was a lengthy sequence in which two characters talk a whole lot of exposition at each other with no dramatic underpinning. It's just information beat after information beat in the novel form when you don't have to convey exposition through talking. So that one just broke my rule of how many uh, dead uh, informational beats that I'm willing to uh, put myself through. Now, I will say in your defense that Powers loves an exposition. Uh, he loves it, loves it, loves it. There is we a may be coming to the nub of the issue. There is a uh, there's a novel that he did called Three Days to Never, which is another time travel thing, and it had uh, Charlie Chaplin in it, sort of, and Einstein and Mossad and a bunch of really great stuff. And almost all the really great stuff in Three Days to Never is delivered as exposition in a seance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you know, and I love Tim, and Three Days to Never is a novel that I did finish, but I will in, in our spirit of sharing and brotherhood and, and therapeutic intra Canadian American love say that I have not reread three days to never. Um, and the one that I uh, tried to read and then just realized that I just bogged down in it and, and I got, I just kept trying to start it and never got started on it was stress of her regard, which also in theory, all of this stuff should be way up my alley. But I, I think we've come to the issue, which is that he regards uh, information beats as gratification beats to use my Hamlet's hit points yes, system, which in fairness, I also do. Yes. And, and there are <laughs> lots of people and lots, and there are other writers who, do, who do this and who, uh, use fiction as a, uh, vehicle for conveying a bunch of information or in his case, playing with that information, because of course you can't go and write your history paper based on uh, anything he tells you. Um, yeah. but, uh, for me, uh, exposition that does not, uh, fulfill its purpose within the story, but merely allows itself to go on. Uh, that's when I uh, lose interest. Yeah, stress of her regard in your defense does start slow. It's a it's a slower build than a lot of his other stuff. I I remember reading it and wondering where it was going, and then once uh, Shelley and Byron show up, I'm sort of well, I'm I'm happy to see Shelley and Byron, and then things get really crazy about two thirds of the way in, and I realize that I've been reading a whole different novel, and that was sort of a great moment. Uh, but yeah, uh, stress of her regard, especially coming right after Stranger Tides and right after Animus Gates, both of which jump right into the story super fast. Um, stress of her regard did take a, a, a while to get there. I should call out while I'm talking about the, the great Tim Powers novels that Last Call, uh, in 1992 is a version of the, uh, Percival quest, the Fisher King quest 
set in Las Vegas in 1990 uh, and going back to Bugsy Siegel, our old buddy Bugsy Siegel, and forward to what at the time was the modern times. And at the time, it was his first sort of book set in the present. And so that was weird and exciting for us Tim Powers fans. And uh, that became one of the core texts for uh, the game Unknown Armies because John Tynes and Greg Stolze and I loved it just as much as it deserved. So I recommend Last Call to people who are out there listening. Perhaps Robin is um, uh, is gun shy and has other things to read, which is a legitimate choice in life. But Last Call, Declare, and Anubis Gates, I think, are the three towering pieces of the oeuvre with On Stranger Tides, a super fast introductory uh, Tim Powers because it's pirates and it's uh, voodoo and all kinds of exciting things. And it's relatively short and it rackets along nicely. And and so that's a good introductory powers. If you are like, maybe what if I'm Robin? What if I'm not Ken? Oh no. And then you just read on stranger tides and you'll know. Well, uh, we've come to our bibliography and our recommendation. And that tells us that we're at the end of this. Oh, so awkward segment and can move on to one in which I probably won't have to confess anything to camp. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Ethan James. Isaac Priestley. James Pearson. Linda and Mike Schiffer. And Philip Masters. The chutter of Selectric Keys, the gurgle of bourbon, and the irritation at the use of the passive voice tell us we've once more entered the <laughs> hut that is hardest named the how-to-write-good land of hut. Patreon backer Trungboy asks us, in regard to research and writing from it, how do you decide what you really want to expand on and what you'll leave as a sidebar type of edition? Robin? I don't know about you, Ken. Uh, you, you certainly do more researchy things than I do, but what I'm doing something that's heavily researched, like uh, Dream Hands of Paris, or uh, there's a, a research component to at least one of the uh, eras slash realities that will be covered in the upcoming Yellow King RPG uh, that I don't know ahead of time 
what is going to come in handy when I'm researching it. So there's sort of several phases. There's the read a whole bunch of stuff uh, phase. And when you come across something that seems promising, I will then highlight it. And so if it is in a a good old-fashioned paper book, I will type uh, the relevant thing into a Google Doc. Uh, and that'll require some level of, of detail, so I'll remember it, because my memory is nowhere near as prodigious as yours can, so I need to note everything down. Um, whenever possible now, if I can find something in the Kindle format, uh, that is extra awesome, because then you can just uh, highlight it or make notes using the uh, highlighting and annotation functions in there, and just go and look at a whole list of things. And so there will be stuff that I'll discover along the way that will become very central to what it is that I'm doing, and I don't need to go back and remember. And then as I'm writing, I'll come up with the outline of whatever it is, and then uh, I will find, oh, I need fact X here. Do I already have fact X in my notes or in my highlighting? And then if I don't have it, I will then have to dig further for it. So it's less a matter of going, oh, this is obviously core text material, and this is clearly a sidebar while I'm reading the research material as, uh, you know, this forms my initial preconceptions, that leads to an outline, and then in the writing phase, then, only then, uh, retrospectively, do I discover how important any given bit of uh, research is. Um, What is your process like? Uh, My process begins much like your process with the reading everything. About half the time, I'm reading it with an eye toward what it's going to turn into. So, for example, uh, doing Dracula dossier, I knew that I was looking out for vampires, and I knew that I was looking out for weird connections to Romania, and I knew that I was looking out for earthquakes, because very, very early, I'd known about the missing volcano that Stoker excised from the very end of Dracula, literally at the last minute. And that is the sort of thing that gets my attention. And so, I knew that if I'm going ahead and reading stuff, I want to pay attention to those elements, because those are going to be big thematic elements, even if I don't necessarily have to bolster them and make people believe them. But one of the things that I do recognize is that when you're presenting something silly, like Dracula was a, was an after-action report, you have to sort of weave it round with verisimilitude and with things that sound like they mean more than they do. And once you've found those facts, it's really just a matter of getting yourself in that proper paranoid mindset where you say, oh my gosh, this is the fifth thing I've read that proves that uh, vampires were actually involved in the British Secret Service. I'm not writing a game anymore. And that's where, yes, those are the things that go in, because those are the things that are giving you that sensation that what you're playing through is true, that the surrealists actually did uh, make contact with the Cthulhu mythos. Um, when you find something like Paul Eloward running off to so- the South Pacific, that's like, well, yes. there you go. You just Slam remember that. Frickin dunk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, because uh, I, I would have to go back and check a bunch of facts about Jean Cocteau. But if I were to think back to the process of reading about him, I would very distinctly remember the uh, children's book he wrote that features what sure sounds like a mythos entity and his process of inducing uh, dreaming uh, with uh, with opium in order to enter a hypnagogic state, right? The things that you that jump out at you as oh, this hits my theme are the things that c- kind of become central to your presentation. Yeah, and it's certainly once you start looking 
for the sort of weirdness we traffic in in regular history, it's surprising how much, you know, jumps out and cocks you on the head. And so it's it's even still surprising to me. And I've been doing it for 20 years. Yes. Well, it's being repeatedly cocked on the head has uh, affects your surprise mechanism. It does. And so the the sort of the sidebar type additions uh, to answer the other half of the question are things that are so cool that, you know, someone is going to want to play with, but that if you pursued them all the way would take you off theme or off point or off something. And I think one of the classic examples there is in uh, Dracula dossier. And this is something that Gareth did. And I'll give two examples of something that Gareth did. One of them, when he wrote up the uh, Telluric vampires, he decided that how do you stop a Telluric vampire with something that is not from the earth? And he went out and he found where are all the moon rocks in Romania? And that's the sort of thing that I would have done. I, I would have done that if I'd come up with that awesome Telluric vampire idea. Gareth did it. And he put it in, and it's a classic Ken sidebar, and I was super happy to see it. But again, you can't be chasing moon rocks. You can't suddenly make moon rocks the whole focus of the Dracula dossier, because then you've derailed the book. Even if but Then it becomes the moon rock right, dossier. Exactly. Even if an individual game might have a great time chasing moon rocks all over Europe, you can't do it. You just have to leave it in a sidebar and say, this is a door. If you go through it, more fun lives there. Another right. thing that Gareth put in is when he was writing up the Vanderpool Garlic, and he says, oh, by the way, um, because of weird European Union customs controls, there is a thriving garlic smuggling business going on in Europe, which is something that I literally had no idea existed. Right. But when Gareth and mentions it. And a sign it, of, of healthy institutions at work. <laughs> yes. And when, 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 uh, well, they're not that healthy. They're not getting enough garlic. Um, and so when, uh, when Gareth mentions that, Again, it's not a big deal. There's not like we don't have a guy who's a garlic smuggler, although what a great NPC he would have been. What a fragrant NPC he would have been. Right. It, um, it also sounds like a term of abuse. You garlic smuggler. You garlic smuggling Slovenian. But the uh but but that is the sort of sidebar where you can sort of see a whole nother game, which is not the one you're writing, sticking off the side, and you have to just put that door there and say, Hey, you can go through that door and there will be even more fun game over here. But right now, we really have to get back to vampires. Sorry. And uh, that's the sidebar is the one that takes you in maybe just as exciting, just as weird, just as fraught, just as crazy a place, but it's off theme. And so I guess the answer to both of those is know what your game is about so that when you're reading uh, stuff, you will recognize weird stuff that rhymes with or echoes what your game is about, right? Right. And part of that is is the focus of your place and time. So... In Dreamhounds, uh, there is another possible game to play uh, that comes after the prime period when everybody is together in Paris, and that's where you get to the interesting but off-point fact that uh, the Surrealists, uh, the, um, of the ones who stayed behind in Paris, uh, the ones who could stay behind and weren't in immediate danger, uh, they became, uh, many of them, central uh, figures in the resistance. And so if you then... Uh, take the idea that the dreamland sort of freeze over during the war, because uh, there's a, a painting of Max Ernst by Leonora Carrington that sort of looks like that has happened. Uh, and uh, the and that thought, that implies a whole other game in which you were the remaining surrealists uh, waging uh, the resistance in Paris with access to a limited frozen down dreamlands. But that's a whole different campaign perhaps the campaign that you and I would be playing if we lived in the same city, but it's not Dreamhounds of Paris. So you right. are, are tempted to explore that. And I do work that in because it's too cool not to mention, but that's 
you know, a prime example of something else uh, along with the moon rocks that is uh, clearly outside the main focus of what you want to do, but you can't resist kind of slipping in there as, as a, uh, just sort of an inspiration to, to the memory. And maybe someday someone will research and run that game. Yeah. Or, you know, write it up for uh, Pelgrane in the future. And we'll say, look at that. Someone did that. Good, good job. Other person. I guess the other thing that you can do with your research is that sometimes a fact will just pop up and it won't be enough to be a sidebar. It won't have a door to it and it won't really go along with your theme but it will call to mind just a really good scene, right? Or a really good moment. And maybe it's a moment that lets you say, oh, right, I am in uh, London in 1630, or I am in Paris in 1932 or whatever. And you can say, I, I like this little moment. I like this little fact. I like this piece of information. Oh, there's a epidemic of what they call the sweating disease in Elizabethan London. And maybe your game doesn't have anything to do with that, but you're like, I'd kind of like to have that because it seems weird and early moderny in a way that, you know, just typhus doesn't. And so you just put it in because it's a, a little bit of a thing that establishes place or it establishes time or it establishes milieu, even though it's not straight up on point. And that is sort of, you might treat it like a sidebar, but you don't give it the sort of uh, welcome, you know, go through that door to another world approach that you do with the sidebar. It's more the sort of thing that's, Hey, by the way, here's a fun fact about this thing that you're pretending to be in. There are party barges in the Danube. There are sweating diseases. There are whatever. And that's a little, uh, a nugget of, of scene making that is not so much part of your ongoing uh, project, but is just too nuggety to resist putting in. Yeah. There are things that you run across that are more kind of images than supporting facts for your main subject matter. And as you suggest, you kind of mentally put them in a box labeled use as a scene or a bit of color in, in a scenario. Uh, now, if you're not, if your project doesn't involve any scenarios, obviously you can't do that. And uh, Yellow King, for example, will have, uh, it'll be more scenario than setting or, or rule so that I'm looking for uh, both in the uh, French horror fiction of the 19th century that I'm reading and in the historical thing, just, oh, this is a really awful horrible thing i can sure i'm sure i can work this into a, a detail and an, an adventure rather than a a section that i'm going to have to you know explain to you so that you can use it in your adventure and i guess sort of a a midway point would be if you've got something that is uh, designed to kind of be improv by the gm in which you're providing a bunch of different elements that the uh, gm then assembles you could have oh and you know there are these uh, you, you know how uh, leeches are used in medicine in this period? Well, guess what? There's leech farms, and this is what they're like. And think about what that possibly means. And uh, here's, you know, so obviously at some point, you got to make sure that your 1890s characters wind up at a leech farm and discover exactly how it is that those work. Yeah, the, I mean, and that's, I think that's the key is like, if you can, if you need uh, to set a scene at a place, why not make it a weird, cool place? And if you need to have an NPC deliver a clue, why not make it a fun NPC? And you can sort of think of that as the young Indiana Jones model, right? Where every single person that young Indiana Jones meets turns out to be a famous dude. It's like, hey, the guy passing him the butter at the Orient Express is actually Matisse or somebody. And that's just how young Indiana Jones's life works. But again, you can do that in your game and it makes it more fun. Uh, for example, in, in my current game, I discovered that, uh, Robert W. Chambers and Charles Dana Gibson were best buddies at the, uh, Brooklyn School of Fine Arts. And so, or the New York School of Fine Arts. And so if they're, um, 
in, in the characters are running around and there's all kinds of weirdness and art and, uh, and stuff going on. And I said, why don't I just have one of those arcs pass through there, add an art quality to it. And then they can meet young Bob and young Chuck and then find out later that that was Robert W. Chambers and Charles Dana Gibson and have good fun. Yes. Uh, Gibson will be an exciting source of uh, public domain art for, <laughs> yeah, <it> will <laughs> for yellowing things. Um, so I guess that basically uh, wraps our uh, segment on how uh, we, uh, take our research and make it into a thing and decide which uh, box it goes into. And I guess it's time to see through this commercial what segment awaits in our next box. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! It's time once more to venture into that most enigmatic of huts, the Elliptony hut, the hut of the paranormal, of the strange, perhaps a hoax or three. And uh, this time, the Elliptony hut uh, swings wide its uh, alien doors at the behest of Patreon backer Vanna Stillwater, who has the following question. Tom Slick, founder of Southwest Research Institute, a non-profit scientific research and development organization, and also, uh, I might add, an oil man and a very colorful figure indeed, uh, was also a noted cryptozoologist and monster hunter. Supposedly, uh, an important word here in the Elliptony Hut, he died in a plane crash in 1962 when returning from a hunting trip in Canada. And by supposedly died in a plane crash, this plane supposedly disintegrated in midair. Nothing suspicious there. Uh, what really happened to him, and why would somebody have either faked or arranged for his death? So, Ken, uh, Tom Slick was known for many things during his life, uh, but only afterwards did his uh, paranormal investigations come to light. He was a big cryptozoologist. He uh, not only looked into your uh, uh, A-list uh, crypto creatures, uh, cryptids like uh, the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti and the Sasquatch. He also looked into the Trinity Alps giant salamander, a, a cryptid previously unknown to me. And uh, we might even stray a bit into the Tradecraft Hut a little later on. So uh, where do you start telling the story of the peripatetic uh, and renaissance uh, figure of Tom Slick? I mean, I think you've started pretty well with the begin with the beginning of the story of Tom Slick, which is certainly... I guess he's most famous for his role in repeated Yeti expeditions into the Himalayas. Uh, at one point, uh, no less a figure than Jimmy Stewart was uh, brought into the mix to smuggle Yeti remains out of Tibet or out of Nepal. Uh, you were not supposed to smuggle any kind of animal parts out of Nepal uh, because you're not supposed to go out hunting things. 
um, without licenses and whatnot. Well, well, I just happen to have this this I had a yeti, yeti hand. piece of my luggage. I, if you're going to take this yeti away from me, well, well, you might as well take it away from America. That's why you get Jimmy Stewart to smuggle things for you. That's how you get J- Jimmy Stewart to smuggle things. And so he uh, helped Tom Slick smuggle a yeti hand, I believe it was, or maybe a yeti paw, a yeti part anyway, back from uh, Tibet. So that's that, that's sort of your high point. If you've got Jimmy Stewart and Yetis, right. I think that you are the winner. Yeah. Now, if you're in the oil industry, Tom Slick, the aptly named Tom Slick, uh, is famous for discovering a big oil field. Right. But pish and tosh, this is not the oil industry hut. No, this is not the, the petrochemical hut. Although that would be a fun hut, too, I'm sure. Um, yeah, but he, in common with many oil men of the era, he also did the odd favor for the CIA, including running an airline that the CIA used much like good old Air America, Slick Airlines or Slick Air was a, uh, was another CIA front airline cover. And some people have said, some people have as much as said that his repeated trips to Nepal were actually cover for his involvement in the CIA's attempt to keep Tibetan freedom fighters going against uh, Mao and the communist Chinese who were at that point invading and muscling Tibet. Right. And indeed, the removal of the Dalai Lama from Tibet was a CIA activity, which happened on March 17th, which just happens to be not just St. Patrick's Day, but also the day of Tom Slick's disappearance in that alleged plane crash. So already we've got the Dalai Lama, Jimmy Stewart, a Yeti hand, and the CIA right. all in one thing. And, and we haven't and even Slick gotten Air, the slogan is nothing suspicious. It's the guy's name. It's the guy's name. Exactly. Um, he also went and looked for the Orang Pendek, the uh, smaller hairy cryptid of Sumatra. So that might've been the Hobbit from Flores living in the Sumatran jungles, or it just might've been a different colored orangutan. We don't know, but uh, the Orang Pendek is uh, full of excitement. And he went down to Indonesia again, not perhaps uncoincidentally, at the same time, the CIA is mounting an attempt to overthrow the Sukarno government in Indonesia. So there's all manner of times when he's showing up doing stuff for cryptozoology purposes that also turns out to be something involving the CIA. I don't believe the CIA was active in Scotland when he's looking for the Loch Ness Monster, but that might have just been he wanted to go look for the Loch Ness Monster as well. Uh, he did also attempt to industrialize levitation, which I think a lot of people don't rate, don't know. He started the Mind Science Foundation, uh, which was an attempt to figure out how uh, Indian fakirs and gurus and what used uh, their mind over matter powers of levitation and teleporting, because he figured if you could apply it to construction, you could make a packet. Right. And of course, there's a long history of uh, military and intelligence interest in uh, uh, mastering psionics for warfare. So... Mm, that could be something mm. going on there too, couldn't it? Mm. Now, as against that, um, it should be known that he was an avid globalist. He was a big supporter of the United Nations, believed in a one world government, uh, started another foundation, the, um, uh, I forget what it was, the, the something peace foundation, I believe. And, uh, it began, uh, he, he attempted to sort of, uh, lay the intellectual groundwork for one world government, which might again have been the reason the people did not want him sticking around. Uh, in 1962. And finally, uh, people who investigate things have discovered that as a Texas or Oklahoma oil man, he had connections with other Texas and Oklahoma oil men, including George DeMorenschild, the Belarusian, I believe, exa- expat 
who was connected up with Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who would eventually go on to run the CIA as well, and other people whose company turned into Halliburton much later down the road. So the question of whether or not he was somehow connected with an ostensible oil man plot to kill Kennedy remains open at least in the books of people who say, was there an oil man plot to kill Kennedy? Right. Well, there is there is an industry in which you need to find new suspects for killing Kennedy. Right, because Lee Harvey Oswald, apparently, not fun enough. Is there a Howard Hughes connection as well? Uh, there is, because um, Howard Hughes and he, I believe, met in California and became, uh, and they, they sort of, I imagine they were sort of uh, uh, kindred spirits in the sense of being a little bit crazy. And, uh, liking the ladies, he, uh, Hughes was a Texan and Slick was a Texan and Oklahoman. So, uh, they wound up having adjoining cottages at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Hughes and Slick did. Uh, Slick was apparently a co-investor with Mickey Cohen in the Larancho Casino in Las Vegas and may or may not have been connected up with Hughes later on in the Las Vegas era. Although Hughes, of course, doesn't come into Vegas until... Uh, slightly later, until after Slick's death. Right. And Mickey Cohen, listeners will recall, is the character in one of the uh, Cthulhu Confidential uh, scenarios that people would rather meet ghouls than meet Mickey Cohen. Right. So, basically, Tom Slick, if there's a mid-20th century conspiracy or weirdness that you want to connect up, I guess the question here is, why isn't he already the protagonist of a Tim Powers novel? Which I guess is, that is a question. Tim Powers is leaving this for you, I guess. He's a good guy, Tim. Yeah. Uh, he was almost the protagonist of a Nick Cage movie, which is almost as good. So, uh, I guess we're now at the point where we are behooved to explain the midair disintegration of his craft. Uh, uh, the Hughes connection would suggest uh, uh, maybe a Watergate thing, but that's way too early if it's 62. Uh, this is prior, actually, to uh, JFK being assassinated. So, if you buy that angle, I suppose... Uh, uh, somebody wants to avoid having this guy who's an avid uh, globalist and idealist decide not to kill Kennedy, and that could be the thing. What What are your uh, main theories here? All right. Well, the first is that there might have been, you know, like you say, a bomb planted on the plane by bad people. Uh, the actual NTSB form about the accident is mysteriously missing. Uh, all that is left is the FAA form that has the word accident written in in blue pencil, which is not really the same thing at all. Uh, Another possibility is that because he, uh, the plane disappeared in Montana, which is, as we all know, UFO central, uh, that he may have run afoul of the grays. Uh, His previous investigations, his belief in one world policy might've indicated that he was allied with the Nordics instead of the grays. And they may have whacked him or he may have run across evidence of their, uh, badness in his previous cryptozoological work and uh, wound up earning their anger another time. Or he might have said, I'm Tom Slick. I'm going to investigate uh, the gray aliens and flown up to do just that thing. And they disintegrated him with a ray because that's their way. Now, uh, did the plane go down in a mountainous region? There's lots of mountains in Montana as if it's sort of named for mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a vengeful Yeti uh, could have uh, brought down the plane in a psychic attack. They would have been uh, vengeful Sasquatch, of course, in America, but uh, the psychic powers do indicate Lemurian backing, and uh, we do know that the Lemurians ran Mount Shasta in California for a great long time, and that possibly includes an outpost in uh, Montana. We do know that uh, 
the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition heard mysterious sky explosions when they were in Montana. So perhaps one of those mysterious sky explosions was a Lemurian psychic vortex weapon. Uh, it could have been that he was, you know, experimenting with psychic powers and it went backwards on him without checking because that spoils the fun. <laughs> I'm going to say that Dell, Montana, because it's in Southwest Montana is in the mountainy part of Montana, not the East part, which is all great plains and such. So yes, there are mountains. He is vulnerable to Lemurians, Sasquatch, or Yeti working in some combination. Then, of course, there's the opposite possibility, which is the 60s is the heyday of the Space Brother aliens, not the gray aliens. And they're famously all about telling us to uh, get along with one another and get rid of our nuclear weapons and such. So they could have been helping him or he could have been helping them institute a one world government. And, of course, there are uh, lots of people in America who don't like that. Uh, including probably his old buddies in the CIA. So uh, it could have been an anti-alien globalist uh, effort to uh, get Tom Slick off the board. Right, an attempt to um, uh, to, to take him out before his uh, globalism and uh, psychic power investigation meshed up, and they brought Nordic wisdom to uh, Nordic alien wisdom, not regular Nordic wisdom. Right. To not not the wisdom of saunas and. Uh, and tasty Although fish the same people who are concerned about one world government also don't like the Nordic system, so no, they don't like either kind of Nordic, the aliens or the Swedes, um, which is very small minded of them, I think. Uh, anyway, th so that's a possibility. The other possibility, of course, is that Tom Slick recognized that he was uh, being hunted by Lemurians or the CIA or the Lemurian CIA and faked his own death, right? Because he would have had access to various methodologies of bilocation, which were uh, taught by the Tibetan lamas that he was out flying back and forth for the CIA in the fifties. So he may have bilocated himself off the plane. The plane explodes in midair and Tom Slick now moves amongst us unseen and unknown, uh, fighting the good fight with his Sasquatch allies. So that's a possibility. He's only 46 when he, uh, when, when the plane went down, he'd be in his nineties now, I guess, or, or his, maybe his hundreds. But we all know that Tibetan lamas and Sasquatches have, uh, longevity. Life extension. Uh, ability. Right. So, well, that seems, uh, I, I was about to say that it seemed like the Liptony hut had more questions than answers, but at least now I have a favorite answer. Right. That seems the most appealing one. Yeah. I, I like the idea that he, that he bilocated himself off the plane. Um, it's a little rough. I, I think there may have been people on the plane with him, so it's a little rough on that. I hope that they were just tulpas. That's my hope. Uh, well, if you have tulpas with you on the plane, you get a better deal. So yeah, that makes perfect right. sense because they don't count as luggage. <laughs> exactly. Yes, they they go in the overhead compartment. Uh, right. So uh, on that note, uh, I think we have successfully answered Vanna's question and therefore successfully completed another episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Join such doughty researchers as Tennant Reed, Wesley Griffin, Alex Johnston, Darren Dumais, and Joshua Hillerup. Snag Canon Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com backslash user backslash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>